This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Let me get to our friend who just is off the air. I mean, he never even had time to breathe, and we already grabbed him to come on the radio. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Bubba, how are you tonight? Uh, news alert there, uh, Scott. It, the temperature in Las Vegas has now gone down from 114 degrees Fahrenheit to 113. <laughs> You're not laughing. I looked this up today. The high, the, it touched a high today of 117 degrees Fahrenheit. That's like 44 Celsius. It was so, this is true, it was so hot in Las Vegas today, and as it was in Phoenix, they had to ground all the airlines because the tarmacs were so hot the tires would burst. <laughs> Sounds like a great place for a hockey gathering. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is about the most ludicrous day to possibly have NHL awards and drafting a new team in that city. I'm, I'm mesmerized by the whole thing. I mean, can you imagine how much these people are staying indoors in this facility? Well, maybe this is a perfect thing then. Here's hockey. Here is your opportunity to stay where the coolest spot in Las Vegas. Oh, look maybe, at you. Maybe Market. there's the marketing. Look at you, you marketing genius. It is. It is, though. As I say, it, it is. It is kind of ludicrous to imagine that they are celebrating hockey in a place that is only four degrees Fahrenheit cooler than the surface of the sun today. <laughs> like anybody who stepped outside, who's been in a hockey rink all year, would literally burst into flames. I mean, it, Jonathan Taves steps outside, and then the, the Blackhawks have to put out a press release that I'm sorry, our captain just uh, imploded. I, I don't know. I mean. Well, hey, the NHL wanted this. They got their $500 million in worth of expansion fees, and I guess it's a go. It, it, oh, it's, it's a go. It's actually going to happen. Think, though, you know, this is not what we we're going to talk about today, but just for a second, the NFL always has spring camps, summer camps, rookie camps. How are you going to have, because they're bringing an NFL team there in the next few years, how are you going to have football players training in 117 degrees Fahrenheit? Honestly, I mean, you can have ho- hockey's indoors. You can crank up the air conditioning as much as you want, but how do you do football in that? I would have to believe that the, they will be practicing indoors. <laughs> I mean, they, I mean, they're going to have to build the Raiders a, some type of indoor facility because you're right. I mean, this is a league right now even more so than the CFL, and we've seen changes in the Canadian game in terms of the way teams are approaching training camp. That you know, uh, that you know, hydration of players. We've seen players Stringer, if you remember him, the yes with Minnesota, with the Minnesota Vikings who passed away due to heat exhaustion. So that you're right, that, and that's you know, Scott. I've never really thought about that, but that is something that the National Football League is certainly going to have to concern themselves with. Here's one other thing: getting back to hockey for a second, the NHL season only ended two weeks ago, two not even two weeks ago, two Sundays ago. Let's say that the Las Vegas or the Vegas Golden Knights follow the path of Nashville and 10, 12, 15 years from now become a Stanley <laughs> Cup finalist. And they're facing the Arizona Coyotes, who also follow the same path. So you have an Arizona versus Vegas Stanley Cup final in June in 115 degree heat. How do you, how, even though you have the doors closed and the air conditioning on, how do you possibly have ice that you can play on there? We've seen problems with ice in buildings and cities that are more northern that don't, that are up to like 80 degrees and they can't keep the ice properly. I'm going to gamble that the better place to be would be Arizona because it's more of a dry heat. <laughs> well, I, I, is dry heat, I mean, this could be the first ever time that we have the Stanley Cup Finals played on dry ice. Uh, let's hope this doesn't happen. I think actually both teams are in the same conference, so it can't Oh, happen. well, okay, so we escape that one. But <laughs> I, the whole thing, again, it's, it's a very, very funny thing, but this is the kickoff to... I can't remember a week like this in the, I'm going to call it the administration side of sports, and that is we've got the NHL awards, they're going tonight, but we also have, we have an expansion draft for the NHL. Tomorrow, we have the NBA draft. Saturday, we have the first day of the NHL draft. Sunday, we have the second, or for Saturday, we have the second day of the NHL draft. I can't remember a week like this. You know, and then you mix in the the opening week of the Canadian Football League, and just when you would figure, you know, and mix in obviously in Major League Baseball, just when you think think that things are kind of slowing down and we're hitting this sort of lazy, hazy days of summer, but I mean, there's just a lot on the plate for sports fans right now, and it's, you know, and you know, I'll extend that too, even with Wimbledon coming up for ten big tennis fans, probably probably its showpiece tournament of the season. 
Uh, it, it is it is busy out there. There really is, you know, Scott. I used to think that there was maybe a couple of months, six weeks, maybe where you could consider it rest time for sportscasters. It, there is no rest any longer. There's about a week. There's about a week when the NBA and the NHL both wrapped up. You had, but now this year was unusual because of the expansion stuff that was going on. But you generally have about a week where it really tones down. You know, you know, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I kind of disagree with you there because the way, especially the networks, the net with the national networks have sort of set this up. And and I'll yeah, and you're right. This is a special year with the expansion draft, but with with the draft coverage and you know what they call the free agent frenzy, like it's like it. it you're right. This, the hockey se- the Stanley Cup was awarded, but to me, hockey season is still on. Yeah, I, I do think that it's unusual because there's been so much around Vegas this year. Um, and also, I mean, I, and I didn't even include in there, and you didn't include the fact the U.S. Open was oh, on yes, this last yes, week yes. in golf. It, no, it it definitely it slows down. It's not like it was, but it's not like maybe once upon a time where literally you were looking, I mean, I'm sure in the TV world, where you were going, what in the world can I possibly put on the air? Yeah. We're, we're, there's never a time now when you're when you're in that position. There's not. Well, are you? Here's the thing, though. The the draft thing, the whole idea of drafts as entertainment. Are, first of all, are you intrigued? Are you interested? Are you captivated by drafts? I think there's. I'm a little bit more captivated, um, and I don't know why. A little bit more with the NFL, and somewhat more with even the NBA. There's the way that those American networks dress up those draft shows. It, it's it's a step higher than hockey, and I think it's where the NHL is trying to get to with the presentation of it all. Um, but, I mean, they're filling the arenas, and people are showing up to these events, so it, it's still pretty major league to the hockey fan. But I, I don't – and I also think it matters on who's available, what big players are available, and for whatever reason, the National Hockey League this year, other than the first two or three players, a lot of sort of really good players, but not – the faces of franchises, I think, that are available out there. So I think it loses a little zest. Well, there's there's more to it than that even, because when with the NFL, you know almost all the players in the first at least couple rounds from their college football. If you're, a, if you're an NFL fan, probably you're somewhat at least of a college football fan. So your team in the first round, your team is going to draft somebody that you know and you yes. know is a good player. Because in the NFL, often, too, you're drafting for position. So you're going to get someone who is good and is going to play on your team in all likelihood as a rookie. And the same in basketball, for at least for the first half of the first round of the draft. Yep. Yep. In the NHL, I would argue that even though we may be hockey crazy in this country, there will be a lot of people who may tune into the NHL draft who will know the name of four or five guys but couldn't tell you anything about almost anybody. They could last year with Austin Matthews because they heard a lot about him. They could about Connor sure. McDavid. Sure. But you tell me that when, pick your guy, Nick Suzuki comes up this year, tell me how many people, what percent of the country is going to be able to tell you, hey, I can tell you about him. I saw right. him play. Nobody's going to know except those who watched him in junior hockey in that town. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, you have Steve Seos on your show tonight, the president of the Bulldogs, and, and this is something that I think the Ontario Hockey League, and I'll extend it to the Canadian Junior Hockey League, they've got to find a way to get into the homes of people more so than it is right now. And I don't know what the secret is, I mean, or I'd be doing that job right now. Um, for whatever reason, and you're right, the only the, I would say for the for the general hockey fan, the association that they would have with junior players that are getting drafted, they would be some recollection because they saw them in the in the in the World Junior Hockey Championship during Christmas time. Other than that, I just don't believe there's an, enough people, and this is sad, watching junior hockey right now that can identify with, as you said, the top twenty thirty players in the league. Well. The, the network that has the rights and still has nine years left on their deal, that has the rights for the NHL, also has the rights for junior hockey in this country. I have no idea. I can't figure out why it doesn't do a better job in the intermissions of games. Show some highlights from junior hockey. Basically make the players who are coming up 
familiar to those who are already watching the NHL. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why they don't overlap a little bit. I'm not talking about necessarily. Can, can, can I not to interrupt? But can I push it one step? Go, further? yeah, go. Okay, you have, and, and this is Rogers Sportsnet we're talking about here. They've got four regional challenge cha- uh, channels. Okay. And two other channels in Sportsnet One and uh, 360. Uh, Sportsnet 360. Okay. And with their Rogers connections, they're owned by Rogers, obviously. Uh, a lot of Rogers games are being broadcast on, you know, OHL games. Right now, I'll just talk about Ontario hockey. On games. the local cable on channel, local like Cable 14, yeah. Which, which these games, you could show a junior hockey game every single night. It doesn't just have to be the Sunday night where they is a big, you know, they they do a big presentation on Sunday night, I think is the night where they do a game. But you could show a game every night and there's really no excuse not to. Especially if you're if you, you know, your arm of the company is broadcasting the game anyway. It just seems to me that you've got a very big captive NHL audience. And when you look at NBA and you look at NFL and you see why those drafts are big and you see that the minor sport, we're going to call it minor sport, I'm talking about the college basically in those cases, are huge. That's been built to be that way. I I just, I can't understand if, you know, in in the second intermission of a game, why not have the top 10 plays of the week from the Canadian Hockey League or something? You will over time start to get to recognize the team uniforms, the players who are on there. Here's the other tricky part. The other than the Memorial Cup, and I say it's bigger than the Memorial Cup, the biggest event in junior hockey every single year is the World Juniors. Mm-hmm. The rights to that is owned by the competing network to the one that has all the coverage throughout right. the year. So you end up butting heads because we don't want to promote that and they don't want to promote this. So we're just going to kind of ignore each other. And I think it costs exposure for the players. Yeah, oh, there's no doubt about it. And and for whatever reason, I find it hurts the actual junior product more so than the world juniors. Because I, I, the other network does an outstanding job. In fact, I, really, if you remember, the CBC used to broadcast that tournament. And the other guys, the Bell Company, took that over and made that into kind of a Canadian staple uh, at Christmas Absolutely. Time. To, to for for you know the middle the middle hockey fan and I, I mean the hockey fan will watch anything, but the middling sports fan it watches that tournament and it, really a lot of times people are at home they're not working and you know what let's watch some good Canadian junior hockey and let's be honest too when the country when the country this country is hosting the tournament that takes it to even another level. So let me just talk. We've got a couple of minutes left here. Let me talk about drafts because I'm looking at this, and again, I can't understand. I do find, I enjoy watching drafts on TV. I like the NFL draft. I like the NBA draft less. I like the NHL draft. But I am trying to figure out why it is that I find drafts interesting because it's guys in suits walking onto a stage naming other guys in suits who walk to the stage and then walk off the stage. They, uh, honestly... The original meeting that the network must have had to say, here's what we're going to do. The person who runs the network, I think it was probably ESPN when they started with the NFL, must have gone, are you nuts? <laughs> this, this to me, Bubba, is an absolute triumph of TV programmers building something from nothing and turning it into must-see TV for a lot of people. Because I, I, it's inexplicable otherwise. I think because the intrigue, Scott, is that you just never know. I mean, I remember that. I mean, a couple of years ago, I think Vancouver Canucks made a big deal, and people were booing Gary Bettman, and he's like, "You're going to want to hear this because you never know if your team's going to make a monster deal. You never know if your team's going to take that first overall pick." And then look what the Boston Celtics did this week. They took that first pick and then dropped down to number three, and then ended up getting another first rounder. So. so even though most of the time nothing happens, there's always the chance that something does, and I think that's why we watch because you just there is a bit of mystery there for for the viewers. And you know, just to add, they should have entertained. Like today, they have Arkells playing. They've got the awards mixed in with the expansion draft. I'm telling you, if you could. Just to make sure, that even if nothing happens, right? Because you just said uh, something could happen. Let's say we go to the third round and there's been no trades. We're going to bring in the NHL's two best fighters. We're going to put a little piece of dry ice in the middle of it. And we're going to have a, just a fight, just to liven things up. Well, the crowds always love fighting. We're going to drop the mitts, have a little fight, and go back to the call, the, the picks again. You know, we can do things to spice this up even further. 
but the hilarious thing is, Scott, and it's funny that you say this, but really the National Hockey League is really the only league that really needs to do this because on just raw merit alone, when it comes to the NBA or the NFL draft, as well say as the top ones, the product stands on its own with people standing on edge. I mean, look what they do this year. Look at the NFL, what they did this year. They hosted the draft outdoors in Philadelphia on the Rocky Stairs. And they had 100,000 people outside <laughs> it's watching. Amazing. You know what I mean? As you said, for just people in, you know, for the ta- Taboo Tagliabu, or sorry, um, Roger Goodell, and, and and listen to a couple announcement of players. See, I th- I didn't realize they were there to do that. I thought that they must have offered free food for the street people, and they all just showed up to get free hot dogs or something, and that's how they got them. Because that's ins- I can't believe you could get a hundred thousand people again to watch guys walk onto a stage. If, if when you whittle it down to the very bare essence of what you're watching, it is like a fashion show without the fashion. It really is. It, it it goes to show you. I mean, it simply said, where does what's the derivative or the word? I mean, they talk about the word fan, and 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 fandom, and and those sports. And I'll say the National Football League and NBA seem to do it better than anyone else. I do hope, and we're we're going to find out. I guess starting tonight, I do hope there are just a huge amount of trades. Just before I let you go, do you wish the NHL had allowed, because Vegas has been under a cone of silence on this thing. Don't tell anyone what trades are being made. Would it have been better if they had been allowed all the way along to say, hey, we've got a deal in place with so-and-so, we've got a deal in place with so-and-so, or do you like it better that it's all reasonably anyway, some has leaked out, but that it's been kept kind of quiet, so we're going to get all of it in the same splash? No, I do like it this way. I, 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 for once, the, the Twitter, the Twitter, the Twitter machine doesn't take over. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we actually are, because again, we talk about the mystery, the speculation, the wondering, the uh, the mock drafts. That's the fun part of sports, because too many times these secrets get uh, you know leak out. Or what we're seeing too, just to, you know, to be quick, it, you know, in NHL uh, the trade deadline, with general managers no longer making big deals on the day of the trade deadline, they do it a week and a half before. So here's one event here where, for once, we will actually be watching. You know, Leaf fans will be watching because, you know what, they, someone might win an, a major award for the first time since Gilmore won the Selkie in 93. There's a lot of intrigue here. And you know what? I don't even know if the Selkie is an award that we really want to remember. I mean, it was okay. It's like winning the Lady Bing in a way. It's Dougie. I know, it was Doug Gilmore. If you win, if you were to win the Lady Bing trophy, would you put that on your resume? <laughs> That, to me, is the trophy where you go, yeah, you know, thanks, guys. I'll, um, I, I can't make it to the awards tonight. Well, you notice that I didn't include Jason Blake with the Masterton in 2003. Eh? See, the Masterton, though, is for people who overcome horrible obstacles in their life. I'm, I would love to win if, you know, if that was the situation, the Masterton. The Lady Bing trophy means basically you were too scared to go into the corners and body check anybody. <laughs> so we're going to give you something because, you know, it's like the participation award. You're a nice guy. Everyone Bub- likes you. <laughs> Bubba, that's right. Bubba O'Neill from CHTH. You can catch him tonight at 11 o'clock and throughout the show. Bubba, thanks for doing this as always. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I do not know. I, I can guarantee you that I don't know where I was or what I was doing on June 25th, 1999. Almost 18 years ago to the day from today. I have no idea where I was. But I'm pretty sure my next guest will. It was the night of the Atlanta Thrashers expansion draft. And as things got rolling, the Atlanta Thrashers selected such luminaries as uh, Chris Tamer and Johan Garpenloff and David Harlock, and then got around to choosing a guy, you may have heard of him before, he's a local guy, his name is Steve Steos. Got taken by the Atlanta Thrashers, and the rest... I don't know if the rest is history, but it, it makes for an interesting story. Uh, that guy, Steve Steos, joins me now. Steve, thanks for doing this tonight. Anytime, Scott. How are you? I Well, I'm great. Where were you on June 25, 1999? Uh, you know, I, I don't remember exactly. And, it, you know, with the expansion draft, just like some of these uh, gentlemen that are uh, getting picked up in this draft now, you know, sometimes a couple of days or the day before at least. So uh, I knew when I was exposed that there was an opportunity for me to leave Vancouver at that time and uh you know it's 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 such a it's an interesting time it's a, it's it's almost it's an exciting time 
I think of a lot of the players that you just, some of the players that you just mentioned and the players that I was on that team with, it's an opportunity. You know, a lot of us hadn't gained any traction in the league and you're going to a team where everybody's kind of on the same level. So um, it was, it was a very interesting time though. Well, this draft, and I think this year's expansion draft is a little different from a lot of the other ones I recall because there's an awful, I mean, they're doing it as a, as a show this year. Was there any kind of, that you recall, was there any kind of show or public thing like we have on now where it's going to be on TV, or did you have to just sort of sit by the phone and wait to hear if your name was called? Yeah, Atlanta Atlanta and Nashville aren't Las Vegas, so it's not quite the show. <laughs> Although Nashville put on a pretty good show this playoff. Absolutely. No, no, Scott, it was more like it, it kind of just part of the process and the phone calls came through. I don't even know if they had it. I know they didn't have it televised. I know they, you know, they didn't do it online, so... Uh, no, it was almost a forgotten thing, you know, and, you know, it looks to me and I haven't studied it, you know, the way I would if I was in the National Hockey League, but uh, there seems to be a lot of real good players out there. Obviously, they've, they've changed it so Las Vegas can come into the league and, and be a formidable opponent, a tough opponent, some, some skill and gives them a, the ability to build a team quicker uh, than some others. You know, I, I look back at that San Jose team. I can't really remember what our, our record was in Atlanta, but I know San Jose won like 17 games their first year and 11 their second year. Um, I think the way that they've set it up now uh, is that Las Vegas won't have to go through uh, quite a low before they're able to build their team. Gives them a fighting chance to start off. Do you okay? You were 26 years old, as I recall, when this thing happens. And as you say, you've been you're trying to sort of assert yourself in the NHL. Do you remember? Back then, what was going through your mind when you heard that you were exposed? Because there's a half of you that could say, oh, man, that kind of stinks that the team doesn't think enough of me to protect me. On the other hand, as you say, you could say, well, this is a real opportunity to get ice time. Uh, It was a real opportunity for me to get ice time at that point. But I'll take you through real quick the carousel that I was on that led up to this expansion draft. When I went from Boston to Vancouver, Pat Quinn was my general manager and Tom Rennie was my head coach. In the two and a half years that I was there, uh, Pat Quinn uh, was fired. And then there was management by committee. Mike Keen came in as general manager, fired Tom Rennie. Mike uh, took over the head coaching duties and general manager duties. Brian Burke came in as general manager, fired Mike <laughs> Keenan. Mark Crawford was the head coach, and Brian Burke was the general manager at the end of this all. And at the start of that, when I first got there, I really felt like it was the kind of that, that moment where I, I kind of made it. I was playing with Brett Hedekin. Tom Rennie was a coach. He had some patience with some younger players like me. And by the end of it, I was playing right wing for Mike Keenan and Mark Crawford had come in and didn't think I was a very good right winger, which he was totally correct on. But I was just sort of trying to find my way. So I guess I, I tried to explain that to you to understand what my kind of my feeling was at the end of it. I was kind of like, okay, uh, you know, I'm going to go to an expansion team and there's going to be an opportunity for me to kind of get my feet back under me again. Uh, yeah, and often the expansion teams are the ones that you think may sound a little chaotic. It sounds like you're going to stability from there. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, and then it was, it, was, it, it, it was some chaos there as well. You know, when you go to, and again, I think Las Vegas has a better chance than, than Atlanta did uh, to start out, but uh, we all went there either trying to establish ourselves or older players that, you know, had deficiencies in their games. We didn't have any star players, but uh, we had a good bunch of guys. And it was, uh, uh, I learned a lot. I really did. I mean, as far as just, you know, the way teams are built and uh, players on the team and how they reacted to their situation and their ice time. And uh, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was a fun time, but uh, I wouldn't want to have to go through it again. Well, I I want you to, as much as you can, because everybody's different, but from your perspective, into the mind of what the guys are going through right now, you, as I say, you were 26. Did you have a family by then? I did not. Okay, no. so it was a little easier. Right. Probably. But when, even though it wasn't televised, you know at least what day the expansion draft is. It's got to be in the back of your mind somewhere. Is there, during that day, during those days, is there a lot of uncertainty? When the phone rings, do you jump every time, or do you just, is it very casual? It's pretty casual, really. I mean, uh, uh, at that point, in watching what I had went through at 26, I didn't know if if I stayed with Vancouver, if I wasn't going to, ha- if I was going to have a spot on that roster next year. So, um, it wasn't like, uh, I, th- I really, when I'm looking back on it now, Scott, I think that there was probably a week or so leading up to the draft where I was pretty sure I was going to get selected in it. Um, you know, I don't think they probably had the guidelines in place. 
where you couldn't speak to the player or the agent or let the player know when you selected them. But um, so there wasn't quite, you know, what you're talking about that sense when you're jumping at the phone every time the phone rings is trade deadline. And, uh, you know, that's sort of a more, uh, you know, you're, you're, that's a little bit more uncertainty. I think the expansion draft for me, the way I recall it, was uh, was a little bit melodramatic. How did you find out? Do you remember how you actually learned you were a, a thrasher? I don't. I, I assume it would have been my agent that called me, but Brian Burke was a general manager uh, at the time, and he was the one who told me that he was going. I was going to be left exposed. And uh, you know, at that point, even in that meeting, he said, "There's a good chance that you're going to get picked up in this in this draft." And you know, he thought it was a good good situation for me as well with everything that had gone on in Vancouver up to that point. Now, th- I suppose it's probably not all that different once you have been chosen from any time you've moved to a different team and you've moved to a few different teams over your career. But wh- what ha- what's the process? Like for a guy who now, let's say, um, I don't know, pick whoever you're player. We, we keep hearing that Mark Mathot is going to be picked up, the Ottawa defenseman. Let's use him as a wild example if he does. He's been playing for Ottawa. He's probably got a place to live in Ottawa. What happens when Vegas calls him up and says, hey, we've, we've selected you? What, what goes on to get him now to be a Vegas Golden Knight? Uh, first calls to the real estate agent <laughs> that was up for sale, uh, but uh, you know I, I guess you start. The, I guess you, you go down on a visit. What happened with us? Uh, a handful of us that went in that expansion draft were invited to Atlanta, and uh, uh, went down and toured the arena. And the one thing I do remember is being with Don Waddell, who was our sister, our, head, our, our general manager at the time, and uh, we met down at the rink. And he took us through. The, the arena wasn't done yet, and uh, there's still construction. I remember having to have a hard hat on and walking through a beautiful arena in Phillips Arena in downtown Atlanta, mind you. And uh, uh, but that was sort of the first part of it. And then here comes the process. So the difference in an expansion team compared to going to the Edmonton Oilers is when you walk through the door as an Oiler uh, and say you have young kids or you don't have young kids or you have older kids, this is sort of where you live. These are the schools they go to. Here's the number for the uh, minor hockey to register, and it's established. You know, it's a team that's been there forever. Um, when you're in Atlanta, you kind of drive down, and you, where do you live? You know, here's the practice rink, which was 30 minutes away from our uh, main rink downtown, and guys were just figuring it out. And I don't think – I assume that Las Vegas at this point would probably be out ahead of it. At that point, I don't think Atlanta or any expansion team would have thought that far ahead to uh, sort of establish sort of areas and things like that. But it was a lot of, uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty as far as like where you're living, talk to some of the other guys, trying to figure some things out. So uh, that's where it was unique to maybe any other move that I had made through my national hockey career. Well, there was one other thing that would be unique that you would have experienced and the guys who are going to be in this are going to experience, and that is you were, they had the Atlanta Flames back in the 60s or back in the 70s, I guess, but been a while since hockey was there it was a non-traditional market and so you guys were i i assume uh, entrusted with trying to grow the game down there this is going to be the same thing in vegas so as a as a hockey player on that first team what extra if any responsibilities did you feel you had to have to be a an ambassador an evangelist whatever you want to call it for your sport um maybe not any different than we did in in other centers i mean we were out to the schools and uh, at rallies and things like that, but I can't recall anything that was uh, that unique or anything uh, uh, extraordinary compared to the other places that that I played. We, we always go out, and, you know. Other teams kind of promote, and, you know, they've been established and promote. But I, I know what you're getting at. I don't know if we really did anything special uh, as far as like marketing our team or getting out there. I think we just we were trying to put as good of a product on the ice as we possibly could. And, you know, there was excitement in a non-traditional hockey market. There's a great deal of excitement in year one. It tapered off into year two. And then, I mean, the rest is history in Atlanta. I left after year two, and they were there for 10 years. And, you know, one playoff appearance, they got swept in that playoff appearance. And, you know, it goes to show you that if you, you need to have some relative success to be able to handle a, um, you know, a, uh, you know, handle a fan base or, you know, have a loyal fan base. And in saying that, though, we did have, um, you know, in Atlanta, there's plenty of uh, people living there from New York and Chicago and Detroit. So anytime any of those big teams came through in Toronto, uh, we would get great crowds, it's similar to what Florida is uh, right now. Just before I let you go, um, 
slightly different tack. You are, for those who have forgotten or are sort of just cluing in, you're the president and general manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs. You've got a few guys who are, uh, two days from now, going to be either in Chicago or probably watching Chicago very closely for the amateur draft. Um, are you going there with them, by the way? I am, yeah. I'll be I'll be flying into Chicago tomorrow tomorrow evening and be there for a couple nights to support them. Does, I mean, as a person, I understand that personally you want the best for the kids on the team, and, and I know you support them, and Mackenzie Entwistle and Matt Strom and all these guys, you want them as human beings to have great success from an actual financial, administrative, advertising, whatever you want to say, position from the franchise, from the Hamilton Bulldogs franchise itself. Does it make a difference whether you have guys taken? Uh, no. We, I mean, we never gauge it by that, really. You know, we feel uh, like we're progressing as an organization and to have you know, a couple of players that are well thought of to be thought of, you know, uh, in the first couple of rounds of the draft is, I think, a testament to some of the things that we've done, um, you know, as we build this this organization, this franchise. I think a great deal of, uh, you know, credit needs to go to the coaching staff and uh, what they've been able to do over this past year. But I, we never think about it in that regard. I mean, we, we, we want to give what the you know, the best, uh, you know, uh, you know, everything available for the players as far as their development and coaching and video and uh, nutrition and great billet homes. And uh, that, that's, you know, we don't we never think about it from a financial or personal. I mean, for our franchise, I think it's a proud moment to watch. Uh, will, we, will be a proud moment to watch these players get drafted and, you know, Marion Studenik and Caden Fulcher and all these players. Uh, because we know we're doing doing well by the kids and, and building the organization the right way and giving them the best opportunity to have success as individuals. What is your role, as I let you go, what is your role as president and GM and friend, confidant, whatever, of these players if things go exceptionally well and they go really high in the draft? What's your, what does your role become when you're there? No different than if they go where they're slotted or even later. We're there, we're there to solely support these players and... Uh, uh, they know we're proud of them and, and the way that they've been able to progress and handle themselves. Uh, my role doesn't change whether they get drafted in the first round or the fifth round. Really, we're 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 there to support them and, and their families, and uh, uh, that that's pretty much it. It's going to be a proud moment when they get drafted, regardless of the number that they go. Well, I'm assuming that you're at home today wearing your Atlanta Thrashers jersey and um, just reliving those days from 18 years ago that uh, that you ended up as a Thrasher. Um, I assume. Uh, uh, no, I, I have. Do you have a Thrasher sweater at home? Yeah, it's way back in the closet somewhere. <laughs> the only jerseys that I, I I don't have any jerseys up. It's funny because I have a couple of them framed, but they're literally on the floor in my basement. Uh, but uh, they're, they're my first game jersey when I played with the Boston Bruins. My two gold medal jerseys were Hockey Canada, and uh, you know I think the Thrasher jersey is uh, is is well behind some of the other ones that I played. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Steos, uh, former Atlanta Thrasher and now the president and general manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs. Steve, thanks for doing this today. Have a great night, Scott. Thank you. Uh, there will be 30 people who will have a story similar or different, I don't know, from Steve's when um, when the night is over. I assume some of them will have the same thought that he does, that, hey, this is a wonderful opportunity to get ice time, to establish yourself as an NHL player. And i got to think there's some of them who are on good teams right now who are saying, Ugh, really? I'm going to lose for the next two or three years? Now, it is Vegas. It is Vegas. So maybe that's a a factor that they are willing to overlook some of the losing. I, I don't know. But i got to think there's going to be some mixed feelings when this thing comes out this evening. We will find out. We'll hear from them. They'll all lie and they'll all say it's fantastic. But over time, maybe when they retire, they'll tell the real story. We may have to wait another 10 or 15 years. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. A report came out this week that says half, half, 50%, half of all Canadians are expecting to receive an inheritance at some point from their parents, grandparents, whomever else. And many of those, many of those people who are expecting an inheritance are counting on the money in said inheritance to help them get through their retirement years. That sounds to me, and I am every bit the amateur that all the rest of you are, and we're all in this together, but that sounds to me very risky. If I am going to be retiring and counting on money that is coming to me that I'm not positive it's coming, but I think it is, that sounds a little risky. 
Well, that's why I'm bringing in my next guest. He does know this kind of thing. Don Fox is with the Investors Group, and he is co-host of Planning Your Financial Future that you can hear every Saturday here on CHML from 7 to 8 a.m. Don, thanks for doing this tonight. Yeah, thanks, guys. Good to hear from you. Uh, Would I be correct with my initial uh, teeth-clenching worry that that does sound like a pretty darn risky way to plan your retirement? I wouldn't put it up there with planning on winning a lottery, but it's, it's right up there. <laughs> and it's kind of funny. They also have stats on how many people are, are, are hoping to win a lottery for the retirement. Um, not as bad as the inheritance, not as high as that, but still, it's just the fact that it's even in the realm of their thinking is always scary. Okay, so we, uh, okay, we know that lottery winning would be a pipe dream, but we also know that a lot of people, they know their parents have some money somewhere, but why would most people then immediately assume a couple things? A, that there's going to be much of it left and B, that it would be coming to them and C, that there wouldn't be some other surprise along the way. Why is there an assumption that it would appear with so many people that this money automatically is going to fall to them? Uh, great question. I, I think to a certain extent, I think it's a, a rationalization of you know, of what they're doing with their own money now, or maybe where they are now. It makes them feel better. Oh, at least I have this I can count on, and therefore I can maybe buy that new truck. Or, well, I don't have much money in my RSPs or, or any kind of pension fund, but you know what? My parents are doing well. Maybe it's just uh, a hope. Um, I'm not quite sure, but you said it very well. It is a risky strategy at very best. And it's really interesting. And in this, uh, it did discuss it a little bit in, in this article is that the actual amount of inheritance are far less than what actually people are getting. So people are assuming they're going to get, say, 150000 to 200000 and the actual amount is less than 100000 Which, okay, which is kind of funny, because I, I was thinking about this today, and it's not funny, ha-ha, it's, um, <laughs> it's funny in the... I don't know how you plan for your future, planning to bank on an inheritance unless you know how much is coming to you in that inheritance, which is just what you said. But that would require you or me or whomever else going to mom and dad or mom or dad and saying, hey, what are you leaving me? And I don't know anybody who's ever done that and said, hey, you know, not, not that we're pushing you along, but, you know, come on, what, what do you got left? I don't know too many people who actually know those numbers. So you're right. It is just an assumption. It's a big assumption. And it's kind of nice to, for, you know, we always actually recommend having that conversation really have the conversation with your kids if you're the ones that are going to be leaving the estate and let them know what they can expect um because again just so they don't have this potential risky pipe dream that they will be getting a ton of money says you know what you know those bumper stickers uh, we're out spending our kids inheritance <laughs> there's a lot of truth you really that. are and people are having a blast like 75 is the new 55 kind out there and and they're out there buying RVs, uh, enjoying life, traveling more than ever, um, spending money, and living way longer, way longer. You're yeah, a financial okay. You're a financial guy, Don, and so you're not a, a counselor. But who should be initiating this conversation? Because I would think that if I go to my parents and I say, "Hey, I want to know how much you're leaving me," that's a really awkward discussion. This yeah, almost no, has to come from the top down, doesn't it? It generally is the top down. It's very rare that the kids are saying anything. It's they may hint or, um, and one good question I often ask my clients who have older parents, say, have your parents maximized their tax-free savings accounts? And just to kind of get maybe the conversa- uh, conversation started, and, and a good reason here is because if they're not, at least if they put them in, a, in tax-free savings accounts, and, and you know, there's $52,000 each that the, both parents can put in there that's tax-sheltered and will flow to the estate in assuming they're maybe a recipient, but it flows to them without any tax at all or probate tax. So it's a good kind of question. It doesn't tell you how much money they have. It's simply you know, saying I was talking to my financial planner and he was suggesting to make sure you are maxing out the TFSAs and also investing it properly. And it, it's just, again, it's kind of a foot in the door. Um, I don't think you need full transparency. I just think it's, a, it's not a bad question to have because death is inevitable. And there is some false pretenses that people think that they're going to get a whole lot of money. And again, statistics say it, they're expecting literally double what the average inheritance is. Do you have any sense, you said that this, these conversations do happen now, do you have any sense what percentage of people would have an idea what they should be expecting? Is it, I mean, I would guess it's still a very small number. 
I would suggest it's under 10%. Yeah, it, it would be small. And But even if you did, let's, let's say that you did get the average, and, and depending which article you read, the average inheritance is between 56000 and about 100000 Well, let's say you did inherit $100,000. I don't know how much that will help your retirement. Because if you, inher- if you invested that at, say, 5%, that will increase your income. And that's a pretty good return, by the way, these days. Um, and you cannot get that in a guaranteed form. You would have to have that invested in a, a balanced mutual fund of some sort. 5% return is 5000 a year, or about 400 a month. So, that's I, one, It's one really nice trip a year. That's about it. It's, uh, it does augment your lifestyle, but it shouldn't make or break your lifestyle at retirement. And that's why I'm thinking if people think that $100,000 inheritance is, is going to make it for them, um, you know, just look at the price of housing these days. Well, and you know what else? It's a, you said 75 is the new 55. Let's say you have this discussion with your kids when you're 75 years old because, you know, I mean, you are 75 is not, again, it's younger today than it once was, but it's still not youthful. Mm-hmm. You could still live to be 100, and those kids oh. now are thinking, okay, you know what, I've got this amount coming. By the time they have gone through 25 more years of spending, there is going to be less in that retirement fund. The fastest growing part of the population, you nailed it there, Scott, is uh, the people over 100 now. It's not a big number, mind you. Just over 8,000 people hit 100 last year, or living, living past 100 right now in Canada, about 8,300, I believe. So it was just, uh, wasn't long ago, it was only 4,000. But put it this way, they're not putting in the front page, front page of the paper when you make 100 anymore. Well, it's fairly common. Yeah, no, it is. It is. The, uh, the sunshine list now is, uh, <laughs> is longer than the non-sunshine list. Yes, uh, exactly. Sadly, I have still not uh, seen my name in the paper, but that's, I also don't work for the public sector, but it wouldn't be there anyway. Anyway, long, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting completely out of line. Age, not hundreds of thousands of Yeah. But here's, here, I mean, this is where it gets really awkward, though, because let's say you do have that conversation with mom and dad. There's going to be some people who are going to hear that number then, and you may not even want to feel this way, but suddenly in the back of your mind, you're starting to think, come on, mom and dad, you're dragging along too long here. You've got to move it along because uh, that money's going away. I, I think that, honestly, not from a financial thing, from a human and emotional and loving thing, that can create some awkward feelings with people. Yeah, there's a moral, ethical, there's a whole lot of issues on a personal basis about about assuming you're going to get this inheritance. And rather, and most people are saying, we really want you to spend your money, mom and dad. That's the common, but it's interesting. Do they mean it? I don't know. That's the part, that's the part, that's the part I'm, I always wonder, because it's funny, when they do pass away, it's like, how fast can we get this money? And one of the questions they often ask is, well, let's say if they lived another six months, you wouldn't have got the money anyway. Um, but it seems that they're in a rush to get it a lot of the times. Not, and I would say a lot, meaning 25% of the time. Um, and it, so it, there seems to be some dependency, okay, I'm going to get that whatever, um, anything from a renovation done to a big trip. It, it's usually spent sometime before they receive it, put it that way. It really is, eh? Like you see that all the time? Uh, frequently. I, I would say in a quarter of the, in, in the situations. And now having said that, the ones that are financially okay and not expecting an inheritance it's also there's a they know how to handle money they've been doing it for a lot of years themselves so when they actually receive an inheritance they're they they add it to the pile it does help their lifestyle they didn't need it but it it helps them a little bit more but they also know how to handle it and they don't waste it Hmm. The, one, the ones that receive it that never had a financial planner before do not have money, never really managed money, it's almost like winning a lottery. And quite frankly, most of those people run out of that money within five years, just like a lottery winner. One of the interesting notes in this study that was done about, again, 50% of Canadians expecting to get an inheritance and 77% of them thinking it's going to be necessary to help them get through their retirement. One of the interesting notes is how many parents now and grandparents are helping their kids either with university tuition or with the money for a down payment on a house or something else. And because money, there's not an endless pot of money at their disposal, mm-hmm. this is money that is coming out of the inevitable inve- inheritance. So there may not be as much when it comes time. They may have helped you now and you kind of go, oh, that's really nice, but you don't realize that means you're not getting as much at the back end. Absolutely. And, and that $50,000 they give you, say, now to help for down payment or, or whatever the purpose was, 
could be $200,000 less when you go to inherit money because of the compounding effect of that money. Um, generally speaking, if they could afford to give that money to you now, they weren't going to spend it, and that would have, say, doubled twice in 20 years. So, yeah, there's, it means a compounding less um, inheritance, and absolutely is a very good point. Um, there seems to be a lot more, put it, taps on early gift, gifting these days. Um, where they're going to gift money for helping out grandkids, helping out kids with, you know, right now in southern Ontario, generally speaking, it seems to be going towards a down payment mm-hmm. in the house. Mm-hmm. And, but no question, that, that um, reduces the inheritance down the road, which nobody seems to mind because, hey, at least I'm in a house now. Um, but yeah, big... You know, but it but could it, be a surprise. If you're anticipating an inheritance that will carry you through, that could be a surprise. It's a surprise two ways. It... it means that your own personal retirement may be less because you didn't get that inheritance. But the other surprise is your parents may run out of money. And then you're going to have to help them exactly. if you've got any kind of morals and ethics and love for them. Of the people who have not had that chat with their parents or grandparents about an inheritance, the people that you talk to, the people that you come across who deal with this kind of thing, how close generally are they when they try to anticipate what's going to come? Do they generally, do most people generally have an idea what is in mom and dad's account or, or nest egg, or are they generally way, way, way off what's there? Uh, way off on both sides. They, they often don't have a clue if it's a big inheritance and they don't have a clue if it was a small one. It's uh, yeah, money is one of those things that's quite interesting. It's kind of like that millionaire next door story. You live on the Hamilton mountain you know, you've raised a few kids, you've done okay, you've saved money. Next thing you know, you could have a, a, a million dollar or more net worth. Um, that same person living in the exact same house, maybe in debt like crazy, um, barely you know, managing their money, getting by, and they could have a, a $200,000 net worth. Live in the same neighborhood, everything looks the same, their jobs are the same, they raise the same amount of kids. It's just how they manage their money. And you just touch on one other point. We only have a couple of minutes left here, but you talk about the house. There, housing for the longest time, especially in this market in southern Ontario and Toronto, has been going through the roof. It's been a tremendous investment, but we've been hearing in the last few weeks with a few new government changes, things cooling a little bit, the mm-hmm. market may be slowing. Again, if I, I would assume that if you are banking on selling mom and dad's home, 10 years from now, that may be up another 100%, or it could be stagnant or it could be down a little bit. Yeah, and, and housing, generally speaking, does not go up 33% a year like it just did. It generally goes up a little bit over inflation, maybe 1% over inflation. That's been like the 40-year average, the 20-year average. This is definitely a blip. In, in, in back in the uh, early 90s, say 90, 90 to 94, housing prices went down. They went down about 25% during that time. And it was a recession, and that's when, when things go up 33%, they usually will settle down a little bit or not move for quite some time. So I, I personally agree with that. Um, I've seen it myself personally. I've um, been in this business now 31 years. So that's a very likely scenario. In fact, almost anybody in the world looks to Canada as, as having a couple housing bubbles, one in Vancouver and one in southern Ontario where we are. One more thing. Uh, you're not a lawyer. Well, I don't know. Are you a lawyer? No, no. You're not a lawyer. Get, okay, I just wanted to make sure. I'm a lawyer, so we... I, I wanted to make sure you didn't have your law degree as well as everything else. But um, it says here in this study, the one last thing that I found kind of shocking because we've been warned over and over and over and over and over and over, I could say over another hundred times, have a will, have a will if you've got anything at all, even if you don't have a will. And 50% of Canadians apparently do not have a will. What happens if you have money to in to give to somebody who is your kid or your grandkid or whomever else and that's your intention, but you have not made a will. How much more complicated? What happens when you don't have a will to that money? Well, the government does have a will for you. You just may not like it. <laughs> okay. Um, it does go to originally your parents, if they're not alive, or your kids actually first, then your parents. It has a certain order, then your brothers and sisters and cousins, and it does not deviate from that order. So that is kind of like the government will. Plus, it gets held up a lot. So there's kind of like the five Ps um, that they look at for having this conversation um, about and you know if you're going to leave an inheritance. And, and the first one was purpose. Um, you should look at your own financial future, whether what's important to you, whether you want to secure your own financial future or leave a legacy. Second is people. 
surround yourself with the right people, lawyers, uh, financial planners, making sure the, the right circle of trust so that you're making good decisions, uh, a plan, things that we've already talked about, a good financial plan, tax and estate plan, perspective, be open-minded. Um, people have certain kind of long lists of emotional baggage, and you sometimes have to break through this so that they could get a better perspective on what they should do with their money. And again, positive action, getting a will, number one thing to do in a state plan is get a will and get a power of attorney. It is, uh, it is all good advice. It's, um, I'll be honest with you, Don, I, everything you say I find fascinating, I find really important. I just, maybe it's me, I just can't imagine having that discussion ahead of time. I, I probably should, I should probably be more comfortable with that. But it just seems like it opens the door to a lot of interesting things that, you know, that, that now suddenly mom and dad, rather than being mom and dad, they are the future cash dispensary or whatever else. I, 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 for some people, I'm sure that would be a great thing. I would struggle with that one. Well, I have had uh, these conversations. In fact, I just had one this week. Um, unfortunately, a very good client of mine, she's, uh, she's terminally ill. And I sat there with the two daughters and they would be in their 30s. We went through their situation what things are worth, how they should manage their money. Because the biggest concern of the mother in this case is how are they going to handle this inheritance? Mm. And they want me to make sure that they do the right things with it, and they're more than happy to do that. Um, it's almost like a gift in, of, that will keep on giving. And I always liken it to kind of the old nursery rhyme of never killing the goose that lays the golden egg. Mm. Mm-hmm. So if you got 500000 and you just use the eggs and say 25000 a year out of it, You'll have that twenty five thousand a year forever. Yeah, it's um, yeah, for sure. And it's it is. I know what you say makes sense. I I do. I it, it makes all the sense in the world. I it's just one of those hard discussions to have. And if you if someone has a terminal illness or if they are exceedingly elderly, mm-hmm. I think it would make it a lot easier. But if you've got healthy parents oh, who yeah. are still very active and very vibrant, oh, boy, that um. You're pro- I still think you're right. I just don't know that I could bring up that discussion. If they're healthy and they could have a long life ahead of them, and you never know about a second marriage for that matter, if one were to pass away. There is a whole other discussion that you we will have it. one day when <laughs> when your mom or your dad is 85 and they've done okay in their life and suddenly their uh, new 27-year-old <laughs> uh, new wife or husband shows up and you think they've got their eyes on the uh, on the family nest egg. That's a whole, you know, we'll do that one another day because I think that could be a lot of fun to talk about that one. I'd be more than happy to talk to you about that one. Uh, Don, thanks for doing this very much. I always appreciate it. You can listen to uh, your planning your financial future every Saturday from 7 to 8 right here on CHML with Don Fox and Andy Lister. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Scott. Anytime. Bye now. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.